For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. All right, well, we are uh, in the book of Titus. If you're joining us this morning, um, if you've got a Bible, grab it. Go to uh, the book of Titus. Uh, the tail end of chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible or perhaps the digital version that you've got in your phone isn't loading, there should be a blue one in the chair ahead of you somewhere. You can grab that. If you don't own a Bible at all, uh, feel free to take that. It's not considered theft. You've just been given permission. So the police officer that's here will not arrest you when you walk out the door. Uh, And he's off duty anyway, so we can make sure that Andy doesn't have to feel like he's got to go to work at the end of the day. Uh, So you got permission to take a Bible. Um, But uh, we are in the book of Titus and are going to shut down chapter 2 this morning. And chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, is this incredible summary of the gospel. And if you've not been with us at all in in the past several weeks, or perhaps you've missed a week or two here and there, uh, what Paul, the author of the book of Titus, is writing to accomplish, he's writing so that these people on the island of Crete, whose pastor now is Titus, who has been given the instruction to go and plant churches, appoint elders, see that the gospel goes forward, Paul, as he writes this book, his goal and intent is that the lives of the people who say they believe in the gospel may look like they are people who actually believe in the gospel. That what you believe determines your actions, and your actions demonstrate those beliefs. And that's a principle that's true even in today's world. It doesn't take a close relationship with somebody. If you're able to observe how they behave, how they treat their wife, how they kick their dog, how they take care of whatever it might be, whoever might be that important person in their life, or just the people that they feel like are meaningless to them, if you watch them and observe their behavior, you can begin to determine things about their beliefs. If somebody is harsh with their wife, you begin to understand, well, there may be some things that they believe about their wife or their love for their wife isn't perhaps what it should be. The opposite's true. If they love their wife, if they care for their wife, there's certain things you can determine they believe about how a marriage and husband-wife relationship would look. Well, that's this big idea. That as Paul writes this small little book to a group of people on the island of Crete, giving instructions to their pastor who was left there as a church planter and one who was to appoint other leaders to share the load, Paul continually is taking them back to this idea that what you believe determines your actions, and your actions demonstrate your beliefs. And the idea is that as we grow closer to the Lord, as we learn more about Him, as we learn more about His Word, as we have the opportunity to mature as believers, that the distance between what we'd say we believe and how we act shrinks. 
that the disconnect between our actions and our words decreases. And in these next verses, the verses we will look at this morning, the writer, Paul, gives all of the reasons why this matters and begins to walk through for Titus as he is planning out his work with the older men and the younger men and the older women and the younger women and his rebuke of of false teachers who were spreading lies and upsetting people. All of that work is all based on these next four or five verses that we are going to look at this morning. And they perhaps are the simplest, most concise rendering of what the gospel is. And so if you're with us this morning and you would find yourself even having questions about what is the gospel. This, this guy Paul and Titus and these old and new men and beliefs, actions. I, I, if that's you, I, I think you found the right spot because the most concise articulation of the gospel is in these four or five verses when what we will look at clearly outlines who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he's currently doing, and what he has promised to one day complete. And so before we go any farther, I would like for us to pray, and I would like for you to join with me. Would you do so? Lord in heaven, we do thank you for an empty tomb, the reason that we're here this morning. We thank you that we have the freedom in our nation to to worship freely, to gather here freely, not at all anticipating or wondering or, or, or being fearful of, of any reprisal from a government that would be against Christianity. God, we, we thank you for loving the world so much that you sent your one and only son to die, that whosoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. And God, as we consider what you say the gospel is. As we consider what your word says, God, I pray that you would would come meet with us here in a special way. That we may understand what it is that you have written. Lord, that we may understand what the gospel is, this word that can get thrown around in church a lot, but has just tremendous meaning to it. God, help us understand what that word means. The reason why even this day is such a significant day. (coughs) So we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you that the tomb is empty and that the grave could not hold him. And it's in his good name we pray. Amen. If you've got those Bibles, grab them, go to chapter 2, look with me beginning in verse 11, please. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, at the very beginning of that verse, the word for or because shows up. In that verse, this section, these verses are serving to function in the book of Titus in a a very specific way. 
Paul has just given the instructions about how you and why you should rebuke false teachers. He's just given instruction about what older men should look like, what older women should look like, what younger men and younger women should look like, what slaves and masters, what employers and employees should look like. And if you were to ask them the question, why, these next verses serve as the answer. So older men look like this. Why? Younger men look like this. Why? Masters, those that are employers, those that are in authority, look like this. Why? Those that are under authority, those that are employees, look like this. Why? Well, the why is answered in verses 11 15, and it sets itself apart with that word for or because. Here's the answer to the reason why all of the instruction that precedes these verses has been given. And the reason is that the grace of God appeared. And now there's three things that we are told in this passage that the grace of God appearing does. Look with me, we'll read each of them and then we're going to break them down. For the grace of God has appeared, firstly, bringing salvation for all people. Secondly, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And thirdly, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so here in verse 11, in one sentence, the Apostle Paul, who writes this book, summarizes all of Jesus' life and ministry. The 30-some years that he lived and walked on the earth in the better part of six or seven words have been summarized. The grace of God appeared. And that phrase is serving as a summary to take their attention and our attention back to and to consider everything that Jesus did when He came and the reasons why He came and what happened at the end of His life where He was crucified and He was buried and the tomb was empty. For the grace of God has appeared. Some 30 years of life and ministry have been summed up in six or seven words. From his birth to his ascension, you have a summary of Jesus. What he came and what he did and the gospel that he preached and the people that he healed and the death that he died and the resurrection that he accomplished. And this grace now has done significant things. As I said, firstly, it is bringing salvation for all people. Consider with me how staggering of a phrase that is. Just for us to consider it in the context of Titus, if you think back to chapter 1, you can look at it if you've got the Bible in verse 13 of chapter 1, excuse me, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of his own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So the people of Crete were known as evil beasts, as liars, and lazy gluttons. And their own people 
characterize themselves like that. This was not an outsider's perspective. This was the Cretans themselves speaking about themselves. You know, when we look at ourselves, all we see is evil people, people who lie, and a bunch of lazy, gluttonous people. We just want as much pleasure as we can get. We give us as much as we can handle. We're going to not ever tell you the truth, and we're just going to do what actually is the opposite of what any other normal understanding of right is. Evil beasts, liars, lazy gluttons. And so for the statement to be made that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, is staggering. It's staggering because the all people include these evil people. The all people include these lazy people. The all people include these people who have spent only their days lying So much so that the very nation that they are a part of becomes the word that is used to describe the act of lying. For the grace of God has appeared and is bringing salvation to all people. There is no distinction between older people and younger people. There is no distinction between male people and female people. There is no distinction between those who would find themselves as employers and those who would find themselves as employees. There is no distinction made with the grace of God. And this statement is staggering because this strikes at all of the many ways that we find and point at distinctions even within our own society. Well, yeah, we believe the grace of God has appeared, but we believe it's probably more for the good people than it is the really, really bad people. Like the grace of God has appeared and it's, it's, it's brought salvation to, to the, the, the 20-something that loves his grandma and, and, and calls his mama on Sunday and, and try to does good things and has a garden outside and is trying to use biofuel and sustainable energy and all. Because the grace of God appeared for that bro. But no, the grace of God appeared for the guy on death row. Bringing salvation to all people. He feared for the lazy gluttons, the liars, the evil beasts. We don't quite today in our world have the same distinctions of the hierarchy of male and female that once was, but there was a time, and it was not even that far long ago, that women had certain rights that we would consider that just were non-existent. I mean, the right to vote comes to mind. And there was very much a sense of second-class citizen at work, even in our own short history of not even a hundred years ago. And the grace of God appeared making no distinctions between gender. The grace of God appeared making no distinctions between occupation. The grace of God appeared bringing no distinctions and making no distinctions even between ethnicity. These are people on the island of Crete. But the writer of this book has been in Rome. He's been in Ephesus, which is modern-day Asia. He has traveled all over the Mediterranean, all different ethnicities, all different people. And the grace of God has come, and there is zero distinction. I need you to hear this morning that if you are here this morning, the grace of God has come. And it has brought salvation. And that salvation is found 
in the person of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did. And if you're here this morning, you need to hear that this grace of God is for you and whatever human distinction may be placed on you that might cause you to think it's not for me, you have to see what the Lord says and what His Word says, that it is for you, because it is for all kinds of people. The human distinctions we place on different types of people that separate them out matter not. The grace of God has appeared and has brought salvation to all people. And salvation is needed. Salvation is real. And it is available through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. But what good is salvation if you don't know you need it? And just think about that with me for a minute. Let's say you know that you do not have cancer. You know that. You understand that. Maybe you went to the doctor. You had the scan just preemptively and everything came back good. But then somebody comes to you just passionately excited, shaking you, giving you good news that they found the cure to cancer. How do you respond? And there's probably some semblance of joy in your life. Because you may know other people that have suffered from cancer. You may have family members that have suffered from cancer. You may have close friends or individuals that you know that, have, that will benefit from that news. But how do you personally react to that news if you know that you don't need it? Okay, it's, it's, it's good news, sure. But it's not news for me. And how do you respond to the good news of the gospel if you don't even know that you need it? And so let's just do this. We'll just take a, a quick poll here. We'll do a little show of hands. And the answer to every one of these questions is every one of our hands in the air. So just, there you go. You can ace the test, okay? Everybody will get an A. All right? God's law, God's word, defines sin as disobeying what God has said. It's the simplest definition of that. Our sin. Tim's already raising his hand. I love it. He was, he was that kid in school, okay? So now we know. Now we know. Okay, so our sin separates us from God. So let's just go to the Ten Commandments. Let's just do this real easy. How many of you ever lied? Okay, how many of you have ever stolen something? Yes, the MP3s on your iPod include that. That fits. Okay, uh, how many of you ever cheated? Okay, the, the, the whole back row of middle school and high school students were like, yep. I mean, some of them were thinking about both hands in the air in that moment. Okay? Dishonored your mother and father? Yeah? Now, what God's Word will say is that every one of us who raised our hands are guilty. And that guilt has separated us from God. And there is a very real need for a very real salvation. So it's not that you are free of cancer and somebody comes and shakes you and says, I have found the cure. It's that you understand you are a stage four patient. The 
very end of your life, that your earthly days as you look upon them are about to end. And somebody comes to you and says, I found the cure. Now how do you react? That's a different set of good news. Because you understand the need. And this is how the gospel is articulated. The gospel has come bringing salvation for all people. This salvation is real and it is needed. And so I want to do something right now that typically if you've ever been in church, this happens at the end, but we're going to do it now. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel right now. I don't want to wait till the end. Give you an opportunity now to respond to this salvation that is for you. And there are no magic words that makes somebody a Christian. There's no formula that you have to say or pray, and that's an incantation. There's nothing magic about this. But I will, to be helpful, just say a short prayer that you can repeat after me. Jesus, I have sinned. I just raised my hand. Thought about raising both of them. And I need your forgiveness. And I confess my sin to you and trust in you for salvation. Thank you for dying the death that I deserved and giving me eternal life. Now before anybody raises their head, if you said those words with me, would you look at me? I'm not going to ask you to stand and do the YMCA. You should just look at me. Thank you. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You can raise your heads. Before today's done, several of you that looked at me, I'd like to talk with you. Please do not leave without coming and finding me and us talking. It's in verse 12 that Paul tells us the very next thing 
that the grace of God has appeared and what it has done. The first thing is it has brought salvation to all people. The second thing is it is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That word training is unbelievable good news. I guess everything I'm going to tell you this morning is good news. But this word, just think about it. it it's, it's present active. And some of you who don't like English, you're like, ah, I didn't pay attention that morning. And, but this word, is, it's, it's present active. It's not for the grace of God appeared and trained you to renounce ungodliness. It's training. It speaks of this process. And if any of us who are believers are going to be honest with anyone else, we have to say, I'm not fully trained. I don't get it all. There's still a disconnect between my actions and my beliefs. And I see the disconnects there, and I hate that the disconnect is there, but there's a disconnect. And you need to know that Part of the good news of the gospel is that you're not expected to be perfect. That there is there's a training that takes place. That as we grow and mature in our faith, that we become more like Christ. That that gap begins to shrink. We are trained. He's training us. To renounce ungodliness, that word training means to provide proper instruction with the intent of forming proper behavior. Okay, so we're, we're right back to beliefs and actions, right? Proper instruction, beliefs, forming proper behavior, actions. Beliefs and actions. Beliefs determine actions, actions demonstrate beliefs. Some of you who went to school and studied teaching, you might have a teaching degree, you were a pedagogy master or major you studied pedagogy that word pedagogy comes from this word training so everything you and i know about just classroom education is built into this idea of you learn things and that causes behaviors to change when you learn that 2 plus 2 equals 4, you do math differently in the grocery store when contemplating buying things. It's, it's just that simple. But it's training us to do a couple things. It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That word renounce means to deny any relationship or association with. It's to say, I want nothing to do with that. It's an expression of your mind. It's a decision that you make consciously that, that finds its expression in your words. It says, I want nothing more with that. That is ungodly. That is worldly passions. I don't want it. Now, this is training. What often will happen then, and again, if we're honest with you, we're going to tell you this is exactly what happens is that your mouth will say, I don't want it, and then yet you find your emotions wanting it, you find your body wanting it, you find all sorts of different areas in your heart and life that, that still want it, even though you've said, I don't want it. 
But the grace of God trains us to say, I don't want it. And it trains us to live in a completely different way. In the text, this word live means to conduct oneself in a particular manner. And that particular manner is self-controlled, it is upright, and it is godly. So the grace of God has appeared. And it is training us to make a decisive declaration with our words that say, I don't want that worldly junk anymore. I don't want the ungodliness anymore. And the grace of God is training us to live in that way. To live self-controlled. To live upright. To live godly. You just think about these people on the island of Crete. I don't want to be a lazy glutton anymore. Well, get off the couch and start working. Stop eating. Start working. I don't want to be a liar. Well, start saying the truth. I don't want to be an evil beast. I'm not sure how to help you with that one, but just stop doing whatever it is that you were doing. So there's this renouncing of an action. And then there's the purposeful training forward of new actions. And this is not something that you and I are capable of doing upon ourselves. And I got a science project for you to do when you go home. Uh, Kids, you'll love this. Parents, you may not love this as much, but just have some fun with it, okay? Get get a jar, like a mason jar, and, and put oil in it up to the top. So that like, it, it almost crests over it's kind of that bubble that happens. And, and then try to begin removing the oil from the jar with your hands. And you're going to very quickly see that this is not going to end well. This is going to take a long time if it ever actually happens. Because the oil is just going to slide off your hands and it's just going to go back into the jar. So you have this jar of oil. Take a pitcher of water then. You're going to need probably two to three times the amount of water to oil. And just slowly start pouring water in the jar of oil. Now the really cool thing is that oil weighs less than water, so the water is going to sink to the bottom, and it's going to begin pushing the oil up, and the oil will blow over. And eventually, at least visually, that yellow vegetable oil that filled the jar will no longer be in there because something else has replaced it. The grace of God has come and is training. It's training us to renounce, to to say, I don't want that junk anymore. And it's putting in its place something else. So for those of you that are believers, what does your training plan look like? We have training plans for everything, right? We have training plans for like spelling tests. That one's pretty simple. You're at the dinner table and, hey, sweetie, how do you spell the word what? W-A-H-T. No, that's not right. Try again. How do you? We have training plans for math. You get math homework and you work the problem so that your mind is trained in how to solve it. Come test day. We have 
training plans for exercise. Some of you are doing the couch to 5K right now in anticipation of the summer jubilee. You want to get out there and run the firecracker and, and, and actually be able to not die when you do it. And, and there's these training plans that are a part of our life. We understand these things. But what's your training plan look like in regards to self-control? In regards to being upright? In regards to godliness. And it's not that you have to just get in yourself somehow and just try to begin fishing out all the gunk. You're going to see with the oil, that's just not going to work. You got to pour something else in. And God's training plan for our holiness, our godly, self-controlled, upright lives is that we might pour in His Word. That we might pour in time spent with Him. And the training of our beliefs and our actions of right content, instruction that leads to right behavior happens as an act of God's grace. We're not saved by grace and then somehow matured by our best efforts. Saved by grace, matured by grace, and grace also trains us to point our eyes forward. That's the third aspect that Paul writes about in the grace of God appearing. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the grace of God puts our eyes forward to wait expectantly for an event that has been promised to happen. We await for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's grace trains us to do that as well. It helps us put our eyes forward. This same author would write in the book of Romans, chapter 8, For in this hope we were saved. This hope of one day Christ coming and making all things new and and completely eliminating death and disease and and where there's no more mourning, there's no more weeping, there's, there's no more sin or sorrow or sickness, this hope. And he says, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he can see? But if we hope in what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And you and I are waiting patiently for his return. And God's grace does this. It works in us to cause us to wait expectantly and patiently and longingly for His return. Now, can we just chat about this? Because some of you in this room long for that far greater than I do. And I'm not saying that to boast. I'm I'm in many ways saying that to my shame because if you were to 
pin me down and ask me, how, how longingly are you waiting for the return of Christ? To be honest, my mind knows I need to want it. My heart doesn't often feel like it does. And when I was in college, it was like, well, I'd like to get married first. And then when I was married, it was like, well, I'd like to have a kid first. And now that I've got kids, it's like, well, I'd like to finish the adoption first. And now well, I'd like to see all of my kids place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For, it, it always feels like there's a first that comes. And they're not old enough for me to even start thinking about grandkids, but I know that's probably another first along the way. And God's grace, though, trains us to want this. Trains us to look forward to it. And hopefully, shrinks the disconnect between what our minds might know cognitively is far greater and yet what our hearts may actually truly long for. See, even this is an act of God's grace. For the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in verse 14, Paul just goes back and he summarizes what he's already said. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's salvation. And to purify himself, a people for his own possession. That's training to renounce and to live self-controlled and upright and godly. Purifying himself, a people of his own possession, who are zealous for good works. God's grace, it's amazing. And it's not amazing in the cute little church way that sometimes we can think on an Easter Sunday, oh, isn't grace amazing? It's amazing in profound ways, staggering ways. His grace knows no distinction amongst people. It does not matter what your history is, and if you are an evil beast or a liar or a lazy glutton, it does not matter what your gender is. It does not matter any of these external distinctions that we can see with our eyes. His grace is for you. And His grace trains, and it, it creates in us a desire to renounce ungodliness and, and, then, and then trains us and gets out all the gunk and puts in its place actions that demonstrate this belief. And then it points our eyes forward to this day when Jesus will come back. When we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who redeemed us from all lawlessness and took for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so we're going to close this morning singing this song, Even So Come. And perhaps 
more than anything, the, the song's for me. It might not even be for you, but the song is a, a song where we sing, Lord, we want you to come back. And we ask him to do so quickly because that's what's the greatest. That's what's coming. And so maybe even as we sing, you might find yourself this morning praying and asking the Lord, like I will, decrease that gap between what my mind knows is best and what my heart really feels like it longs for.